0: If I'm honest, I tried at least five times to get out of the sermon this morning. And it wasn't you guys, I promise. But uh, I tried a whole bunch of times to get out of this this sermon, so much so that Brad last week actually came to me and he's like, hey, do you need me to co-teach this with you? Because like, you know, I'll kind of give you an out. I was like, no, I can do it. But I was really wrestling with the idea of why did I not want to do this sermon. Because they came to me and they're like, hey, I want you to wrap up the series talking about loving people you disagree with. And at first I thought I didn't want to give the sermon because I'm like, okay, cool. Well, Jesus sums up the whole Bible as love God, love people. And so I can just kind of read that line and walk off the stage. Unfortunately, as you know, pastors can talk a long time about nothing. So, um... I didn't used to think I have that skill, but I learned I'm wrong. I do have that skill. So that wasn't the reason, and I was really struggling with why do I so badly not want to talk about loving people we disagree with. And about two or three weeks ago, I don't remember, um, I don't know if any of you guys struggle sleeping. There's plenty of times, so Courtney wakes up for work at like 5 a.m. There's, there's times I'm still awake when Courtney leaves for work. And uh, this was one of those times I, was, I, I couldn't fall asleep and it was like three or four o'clock in the morning that I actually wrote this sermon um, because it finally hit me why I didn't want to talk about it. And what I realized is I didn't want to stand on stage and talk about loving people you disagree with because really I just have to call myself out for all the things that I wanted to say. And I realized I had become the person who was no longer loving people I disagreed with. And when I really tried to wrestle and pray and understand that, I realized it's not that I'm, I think I'm a loving person. If, if we ask most of you, and probably all of you, are you a loving person? You're probably going to think about it and say, yeah. Like, I do a good job of loving the people around me. I am nice. Now, I personally use too much sarcasm. And sometimes I make some teenagers cry. Not that often, but it's happened, you know, a few times. But when I stop and evaluate, I don't think I'm an unloving person. And so to me, that wasn't the reservation. And the more I prayed and the more I really tried to understand why did I not want to give this sermon, I realized it was because people I disagree with, people who have different opinions than me, people who say things I don't like and do things I don't like, I no longer see as people. Because for us, when we see people as people, I think we probably, most of us have to love them, right? Now, people may make us angry enough that we cross that line. But I think in general, we as Christians kind of get that idea. Um, But for me, what I realized is someone would, would post something or say something or do something or I would watch a video And I would get mad and and I would no longer see that person as a person, I would just see them as their view or their belief or their action. And a belief or an action or a view I can dislike and I can say bad things about and think bad things about. Whereas when I see them as a person, I can't. We did a podcast, uh, uh, I think we released it last week, with the teens. Um, And I released a a short one-minute clip. And honestly, I only picked that clip because all four people spoke. So I was like, hey, promote everybody. But when I went back and watched that clip and, and really listened to it, that clip, we talked about loving people we disagree with. And Danny gave us the wisdom of, like, disagree and love. It's like, yeah, that's a great idea. And then one of the students said, but if I'm honest... I know I should disagree with love and I know I should be open-minded and I know I should try to understand where that person is coming from, but sometimes I don't want to. And sometimes when someone disagrees with me, it makes me angry. And I sat back and I watched that clip and I realized, yeah, that's me. Because when I actually take the time to understand where someone else is coming from, then they become a person again. And then I know that I have to love them, but when they are still their idea or their belief or their statements or their actions, they are not a person. And I loved his honesty in that clip and and it really hit me and, and I've been really challenged in trying to wrestle with this idea of how do I see people as people again? Because we know what our culture is right now. We know cancel culture is prevalent and we are drawing lines in the sand. And and in that podcast, the teens actually talked about how, you know, at their schools, people want to know what side you're on so they can cancel you along with the people they're canceling or they know not to. And there's so much division. And maybe it's always this way. And I was just naive because I didn't pay any attention to what was going on in the world. But... I mean, we know, it is no secret how divided we are as people, and I think it's easy to see people on, on opposite sides that do things we don't like. We don't see them as people anymore. Maybe some of us are too busy and too distracted, and I know um, a lot of our mental health aren't exactly in great states, right? And so maybe we just don't even notice people around us, and it's not so much that we, we don't view them as people, we just don't even see people. but I think that we have culturally kind of bought into this, this idea of division and, and whatever else you wanna throw in there, but like canceling people and, and dividing and I know for me, I finally realized that when I saw something someone wrote and it made me just angry inside and I realized, okay God, I, I finally get it and I know I, why I don't wanna get on stage and talk about this. And I imagine a lot of you can relate the same way. And what's hard is I know that some of the things that we wanna say and stand up for are things that we know that we're right about, or I guess think that we're right about. Um, And I'm not saying that we can't disagree and I'm not saying we can't have a voice, but I think that we have to start from understanding that who we are talking to and who we are talking about is a person. They are a human being, and and I honestly am not sure I know how to disagree with love right now, but I know that it starts with seeing them as a person. And when we read the Bible, it's really interesting to me, like this is not a new problem that we've had. You see it all throughout the Bible, and the Bible uses this term Jew and Gentile, and I don't think the Bible does a very good job of explaining what a Gentile is. Um, But when the Bible uses the word Gentile, it very simply means a non Jew. And so when it's talking about a non Jew, it's talking about beliefs, but also like the lineage, the ethnicity. Um, And so Jew and Gentile is a division in the Bible. Um, And so I tried to do some research. This is the Trevor Grimo history version that you know is only about 50% accurate. But I did my best, and I'm full disclaimer, right? Uh, I tried to research this, you know, I lose focus quickly too, so I tried to understand why is there this division between Jew and Gentile? Because when, we're going to read a story from Peter, and Peter mentions that it's a law, and I couldn't find anything that was a written law about associating with Gentiles. But there are some laws, if you go all the way back to the Old Testament, Um, that talk about food with idols and some different things that seem like they were put into place to put a wall up between Jew and Gentile. But we know that somewhere along the way, it became, whether it was written or not, a law that Jews were not allowed to interact with Gentiles. You see this play out when Jesus is being crucified. When Jesus is arrested and taken to Pontius Pilate's house, the disciples stay outside the house. And when I always read that story, I was like, yeah, they probably weren't allowed to go in or they were afraid or whatever. And after doing some research, it sounds like they didn't go into his house because of the laws they had, because Pilate was a Gentile and they were not allowed to enter or associate with Pilate. Even though this is kind of like the biggest deal ever, Jesus being arrested, they are still good Jews who follow the rules that were set up for them, where they stay outside and they sit there like, well, wait. And so I try to understand, where did this come from? Why did this exist? And I think it goes all the way back to Abraham in Genesis, when the Jews were promised land that God was going to give them. As you know, if you've read the Old Testament, they do stupid stuff constantly, and God's like, well, now you gotta wait, you gotta go into slavery for a while, you gotta wander in the desert till all of you die. Then eventually we get to the part where they get the land. They are given a rule when they take the land. They are supposed to destroy all idols in the land, destroy everything in the land, and only worship God as God. Well, when they take the land, they do the opposite. Then they start taking on idols, And they start intermarrying and they start doing all this stuff they were told not to do. God puts them back into slavery. The kingdoms divide. There's so much division in the Old Testament. And it seems like somewhere along the way to help with this problem, they created a rule where they no longer allowed to interact with people who weren't Jewish. So it's sort of like, I'm the problem, but I'm going to wall myself off from you because I see you as the problem. I don't know if it was a shift of blame. Maybe they thought it was a way to protect themselves, the whole idea about being set apart. And so somewhere along the way, it became a, a law, a rule in their culture that they were not supposed to associate or enter the home of a Gentile. Now, we get to the disciples. And when we watch Jesus, when we read his life, when we see the way that he lived, all he did was interact with people that he wasn't supposed to we see the woman at the well we see the way he eats with sinners and tax collectors and walks around and talks to people and he's always painting these different people as heroes of the story right the Samaritan the good Samaritan story and it was the other than claiming to be God it was probably the one thing that the Jewish leaders hated the most about Jesus Like, he claimed to be God, which was a big deal. But other than that, I think they hated the people he interacted with. And they were like, a Jewish teacher does not interact with these types of people. And somewhere along the way, there became an arrogance, I think. Um, We see that in the way the Pharisees kind of act out and the way that they talk. There's an arrogance about me being better than you. And so we're going to pick up a story in the book of Acts where Peter Remember, he walks with Jesus three years, he watches all this play out, the last thing Jesus says before he goes into heaven is you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Okay, Jerusalem might be mostly Jewish, but beyond that, those are like all non-Jewish places. The ends of the earth definitely includes everyone. Do you know what the disciples did when Jesus went into heaven? They stayed in Jerusalem and ministered to Jews. They kept all the old Jewish laws despite Jesus' attempt to try to change everything. And so there's this weird story that takes place in Acts chapter 10. And to set it up, there's a guy named Cornelius who wants to talk to Peter, who wants to learn about God. Cornelius is a Roman officer who would be a Gentile who wanted to talk to Peter, but essentially wouldn't be allowed to. And so he's trying to do something, and the angel appears to him, and he's like, hey, send your people for Peter. I don't know about you guys, I don't have people to send, so this guy must be important. Send your people to go get Peter and bring him back, and he will come, and he will talk to you. Like, okay, so he sends some people to go find Peter but remember Peter does not want to interact with Gentiles because he still thinks he's a good Jewish boy following all the rules I shouldn't say boy he's probably pretty old at this point right like whatever So in verse 9 where we're going to pick up here's what it says The next day as Cornelius's messengers were nearing the town Peter went up on the flat roof to pray It was about noon and he was hungry But while a meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. Does anything weird happen to you guys, like, when you get really hungry? Courtney just gets angry and yells at me. Um, I love Courtney, but she does get angry when she's hungry. Uh, But I I don't have any weird, like, visions. But you hear stories about people who, like, are thirsty and, like, they see water in the desert and they walk over there and there's none there. I don't know if Peter's, like, just super hungry and maybe these things are normal for him, but he's hungry and falls into a trance, Okay. The hunker part's pretty important for the part coming next. Like I said, the story gets a little weird. He saw the sky open up and something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners. All right, again, when I read scripture, sorry, you have to see it my way. This has nothing to do with the sermon, but it bothers me that it says it's let down by its four corners. Like, why couldn't the sheet just be let down? When it's on its four corners, it's like curled up, right? And how do you see what's in it? Anyway, that's the way I see it. And it just bothers me that that's in there. Okay. It says this, in the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles, and birds. You can put whatever animals you want in there. I'm putting alligators and uh, peacocks because they're really pretty. Then a voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat them. Okay, so to recap, Peter's hungry. He falls into this weird trance thing. He sees a sheet being let down by its four corners. I don't know why that's important, but... Four corners, let the sheet down. He sees animals, reptiles, and birds. And the voice says, get up, kill, and eat them. Okay? If I read this to middle school boys, 50% would be like, I'm killing the alligator. The other 50% would be like, I was sleeping. What would you say? So I don't know where you guys fall. I don't know what you're thinking if you're Peter in this story. But this is a weird situation to be in. Okay? So Peter has no idea what is going on. But Peter is a good Jew and remember he follows all the rules and they had very specific rules about what they could and could not eat. And so Peter's response, even though he's in a trance and he's hungry, he says, No, Lord, I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure or unclean. The voice spoke again and said, Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. The same vision was repeated three times and then the sheet was suddenly pulled up to heaven. Okay? He saw some animals, he was told to eat and kill them three times. He's like, "No, no, no, I won't do it." God says, "Do not call anything unclean that I have made clean." Okay? Peter has no idea what this means because it says in the next verse, "Peter was very perplexed." What could this vision mean? And just then the men sent by Cornelius found Simon's house standing outside the gate. They asked if a man named Simon Peter was staying there. Meanwhile, as Peter was puzzling over the vision, we get a matrix moment, the Holy Spirit says, three men have come looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and go with them without hesitation. Don't worry, for I have sent them. It feels like just like follow the white rabbit. Anyway, matrix four is coming up. Woo! Um, I have a problem, I know. So, Peter went down and said, I'm the man you're looking for. Why have you come? Okay, remember, Jews were not allowed to associate or enter the house of Gentiles. So these guys do a really good job trying to sell Peter on coming with them. And I would not have caught this before, but I really believe the reason they give all these reasons is because they are trying to convince Peter that it's okay to come with them when they know his answer should be no. So here's what they say. They said, We were sent by Cornelius, a Roman officer, But then they go on, he is a devout, God-fearing man who is well-respected by all the Jews. They're like, everybody likes him. Then they throw on this, a holy angel instructed him to summon you to his house so that he can hear your message. Again, I really think they're just trying to pour it on and be like, Peter, please come with us. So Peter invites them to stay for the night. The next day, he went with them, accompanied by some brothers from Joppa. They arrived in Caesarea the following day. Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together all of his relatives and close friends. He calls over everyone he knows because of how important this is to him. He has no idea if Peter is coming. He takes a risk, right? The, the messengers couldn't send a text to be like, hey, we got him, woo. Maybe there was a pigeon they sent back like, hey, he's coming. I don't know. But they had no idea he was coming and he calls everyone together because of how important this is to him. It says, as Peter entered the home, Cornelius fell at his feet and worshiped him. Peter pulled him up and said, stand up, I am a human being just like you. They talked together, they went inside where many others were assembled. Here's where Peter finally puts it all together. He says, Peter told them, you know it is against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home or to associate with you. But God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. So I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. Now tell me why you have sent for me. I don't know about you guys, but reading this story makes me realize how, if I'm honest, I have looked at people as impure or unclean. Not necessarily those words, but the way Peter is saying it. Peter is someone who walked with Jesus for three years. He saw Jesus minister to all sorts of people. He watched him interact with countless people that he would not have talked to. Jesus tells him to go be his witnesses everywhere. And it takes this weird vision on a roof that's kind of a strange story for Peter to finally understand I should not view anyone as impure or unclean. After this story, Peter actually goes back to the church leaders, the other guys he was doing ministry with. And you know what they do? They yell at him. They were like, why did you enter this guy's house? And Peter says, hold on, let me tell you what I learned and let me tell you what I saw. And the part I didn't read after Peter enters his house, what he sees is he presents the story of Jesus to them. He tells them about God. He watches the Holy Spirit descend on these people. He sees them speak in tongues and understand and embrace the power of the Holy Spirit. He watches God move in them. But their laws said we can't talk to those people, we can't enter their house because he viewed them as impure or unclean. And Peter finally explains it and the early church finally understands that the message of God, that the love of God is for everyone. And for me, it's not a law that gets in my way. Like I said, it's, it's not viewing people as people. I think we all have something that gets in our way of that, that ability. Paul is someone who tried to help us understand this, and there's a really cool verse in Ephesians 2.10. And it's a verse you you know, we use in the church um, a fair amount. I heard it a lot as a kid growing up. And the verse used words like workmanship and handiwork, and maybe it's because I don't know how to build anything and I just play video games in my basement all day, but those words don't mean anything to me. When I read workmanship and handiwork, I'm like, that sounds kind of weird, like, Okay. And it wasn't until I read the NLT version of this verse that I finally understood what Paul was trying to communicate. And I think this is a verse that we all need to understand. And it very simply says this For we are God's masterpiece. We are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. You are God's masterpiece. And I know you know the imperfections in you and the things that you do wrong and the screw-ups that you have and it's probably hard for you to see yourself as God's masterpiece. We talk with teens a fair amount about this because I think it's really important that you understand You are valuable because God created you and God loves you and God said you were. You are a masterpiece of God. But what I realized this week as I was praying and learning about this sermon is that means that every other person in this world is a masterpiece of God. The person that I disagree with, the person that made me angry, the person that maybe I'm too busy to even notice is a masterpiece of God. They are a masterpiece simply because God loved them, created them, Jesus died for them. And He said so. And like I said, for me, it's been a real struggle because I've had to finally admit that I really only see the people close to me as God's masterpiece. I only see the people I like as God's masterpiece. I definitely don't see the people that all the division has created as, as a masterpiece of God. The people on whatever side of whatever issue are all masterpieces of God. And even if we believe they have a wrong view and a wrong belief and are taking wrong actions, they are still a masterpiece of God. And like I said, I know that we need to learn to disagree differently, to have conversations differently. I don't think it's that we need to stay silent or that we need to not have tough conversations with people, but all of that starts for me from understanding that the person we are talking to is a masterpiece of God. And it's changed my prayers because I used to pray a lot more for other people than I do for myself. And what I've learned in the last three weeks, wrestling with this, is that it's more important that I pray for myself and that I learn to see people differently than that I pray for them to change. Because I can never help someone if I don't see them the way that God sees them. There's an old song, uh, one of our students actually made a highlight video to it like eight or nine years ago. Um, I don't even like the song that much, but I was reminded of the words this week. The chorus of the song is, give me your eyes for just one second, give me your eyes so I can see everything that I've been missing, give me your love for humanity. And I've realized that's what my prayer needs to become. I don't see people as people, I see them as their views, as the things that I disagree with, as the things that I don't like. And I'm really starting to pray that God would allow me to see everyone else as a masterpiece of God because I don't think it's our ability to love that is the problem. I think it's just the way that we see other people that is the problem. And this is not new to us. The disciples totally missed it, walking with Jesus for three years. And I hope this is something that we can capture as our heart in all of this. Let me pray for us this morning. God, I, I very simply ask that you would change our hearts to be your heart. God, that you would allow us to see everyone else in this world as the masterpiece that you created them to be. And God, I pray you help us get over our disagreements, our differences, all the things that we just want to tell them and help us first stop and realize what a masterpiece that they are and see their beauty the way that you see their beauty, God. Amen.